Hello, it's Ritika, Kaite, and Nari, and you're listening to The Cortex Cast. In today's episode, we dive deep into the world of sleep. We speak to Dr. Rafaele Sarnataro, a postdoctoral researcher whose very recent DPhil or PhD research focused on the mitochondrial dynamics in sleep active neurons in fruit flies. Thank you for joining us today. So thanks a lot for asking me to participate in this episode. I'm Raffaele Sarnataro and I'm a postdoctoral research scientist here at the University of Oxford in the lab of Professor Gero Misenbock. I've completed my DPhil in neuroscience in the same lab a few months ago. I'm Italian and I was educated at the University of Pisa in Scuola Normale Superiore where I got my Bachelor of Science in Biotechnology and Master of Science in Molecular and Cell Biology. So I'm a molecular biologist by background. Then I did some experiences abroad. I was for a summer at the Harvard Medical School. I did research there also in molecular biology. And then I moved to neuroscience, so I came to Oxford, I did the, my MSc in neuroscience, uh, the program continued with the DPhil in neuroscience, and here I am. That's fantastic. So you've been in Oxford as a master's student, a DPhil student, or in other words a PhD student, and now as a postdoc. How has that journey been for you at each stage? It's been really fun. Of course, there's been COVID in between, so very peculiar also for this reason. But no, I mean, of course, Oxford is amazing because, I mean, it's a place that is ready for international people to come. And it's a very welcoming environment. There is all the infrastructure ready for integrating a newcomer into the community. There's colleges, especially if you're a student, colleges are super welcoming. So I really made lots of friends in my first years in Oxford. And of course, I mean, starting from a master in neuroscience to a DPhil and now a postdoc, these are very different uh, positions. But I felt that the, the biggest uh, transition was within each of these stages in a way, because really in the master, for example, you start from a point where is mostly courses and then you switch to doing more research and your daily life really changes. If you're already doing research during your master and then you, you continue in a DPhil, it's basically the continuation of the same style. And during the DPhil itself, I felt there was you know, more maturity that comes over time and experience and seniority. So that to a point where when you transition to becoming a postdoc, there's not really any difference anymore. But I'm very different now from, to... Uh, what I was five years ago. So I felt most of the transitions are actually within each of these stages. I see. And in this journey, how did you come to study sleep? So yeah, I found it a super interesting topic because first of all, it's a basic behavioral state that all the animals display in a way or another. And I found it interesting just because understanding a basic behavior is interesting by itself and why such a, a basic behavior has been kept by evolution uh, I think is one of the biggest mysteries that life science have. We all know that if one night we are sleep deprived then on the following day we work very poorly. So understanding first of all why we need to sleep and what the essential function that sleep has it's still unknown in the scientific community. There are many theories but still a lot needs to be done and proven. And the way we in our lab we approach the problem is to understand how sleep is controlled and we believe that understanding how sleep is controlled will tell us more about what are the essential variables that are linked to the function of sleep. We know that there are centers and neurons in the brain that have a key control over the implementation of sleep. 
Our lab has looked at this under many different angles. The way I approach the problem is uh, looking both at what's happening within these neurons in terms of the molecular machinery that is engaged by sleep loss in these neurons and how they respond in a cell autonomous way to loss of sleep, sleep derivation, at different states of sleep pressure in a way. And also what are the circuit dynamics of these neurons and how do they receive inputs and outputs. So that's in broad terms. And I think the, we had interesting findings in both ways. Definitely I can say that mitochondria are uh, arrangement in the mitochondrial machinery uh, uh, is something that happens uh, in these neurons depending on sleep pressure again and these neurons have very interesting network dynamics that are uh, and different modes through which these dynamics uh, can transmit information about sleep need to the whole brain. And I think the, the reason why I feel understanding sleep is interesting is not only because of its, uh, it's a big mystery but also because more and more in the population people are suffering of sleep problems. I mean there are different reports and sleep problems is a broad term but up to half of the world population experiences some sort of sleep problems which have consequences in, all, um, in, in almost virtually any pathology. And yeah, so I think understanding how sleep is controlled will, tell us, will, will help us understanding how we can control sleep and improve it uh, and fix it when, when needed. Certainly. What I also find super fascinating is how there is such a diversity in nature in terms of how different animals in different environments sleep, isn't it? Yeah, the, as we said, sleep is, uh, is universal, but it varies a lot between species. The amount of sleep, the, uh, the distribution of sleep in the, you know, within one day and also over months, we know that it's, it's very different. We know that the animals that completely forego sleep for months when they are migrating, for example, or when they are looking for partners or when they are hungry. Uh, so that's extremely interesting. There are animals that display different kinds of camouflages when they're sleeping. People say it's, uh, you know, cuttlefish or octopus. Some people say that's, you know, somehow they're, it's a reflection of their dreaming. But again, that's super interesting because we know that when we are in REM sleep, which is the phase where we dream the most, um, our bodies um, is paralyzed. And whether this is true or not for all the animal species, that's very interesting. Also, why do we dream in the first place? Is that because we need to go through the experiences of the day uh, in a way or another? And having our body paralyzed is a way for us to avoid moving in response to those stimuli that we perceive, for example. That's whether this is concerned or not in other species. I feel it's, it is something unknown and it will be interesting to know. And this will tell us about, for example, the nature of uh, the essential need for sleep, whether uh, for example, replaying the experience that we had in a day in one way or another is a fundamental function of sleep or is one of the many accessory functions of sleep that came afterwards. So, yeah, I think there is value in, in, in studying sleep in many in the different animals. There are animals that have unihemispherical sleep. There are animals that, well, for example, jellyfishes, for example, they have different ways of pulsating when they are asleep or not. So I think there is extreme, it's, 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 it's such a beautiful behavior, but they have so many ways of manifesting that, that understanding what it's in common across all of them will, will be, um, I think, extremely powerful. And therefore, we still do not know what sleep is. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we know what sleep does. We know a lot yes. about what sleep does. <laughs> does. Uh, definitely, definitely. Uh, yes. And I also the definition of sleep is also very interesting. Yeah. So. It's so multifaceted and mm. I feel like sometimes we forget to acknowledge that because we as scientists looking at one particular readout get fixated on just that. It's it's a form of science. We can't do anything about it, but it's very important to acknowledge that there are several other things that happen, could happen, and lead to, and result from sleep. Exactly. So some beha some behavioral readouts might be a specific adaptation of a specific or ecological niche, uh, and they are very solid within those animals, but may not be, you know, the the common ancestral feature of sleep or one of the True, and also in th those terms, the results we find in our laboratory conditions may actually be very different from what's happening in nature. What are your views on that? Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, the, the animals that we use in the last, maybe mice, flies, or any other animal, are absolutely different from the wild animals. Uh, and of course, I mean, even just the the fact that we keep animals in a very fixed light dark cycle is absolutely different from what they <laughs> from what they experience, experience in wildlife and same is true for the availability of food uh, and these are two just even just those two things are two parameters that we know affect sleep a lot so i think more and more there are um, attempts and many studies that they look at sleep in animals when they are in their uh, normal ecological niches and i think this is Definitely one of the ways forward for um, understanding sleep better. Of course, it's difficult under technical point of view, and the variation in the data is definitely higher. But I think there is definitely value in in that. So in more naturalistic settings. More naturalistic settings, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Fantastic. Now moving on, could we talk a little bit about how you approached and arrived at the idea of looking at mitochondrial dynamics during sleep? That's a very interesting question. Thank you. The, so, um, multiple things actually. Uh, I started with a, uh, an unbiased approach. So I did uh, some transcriptomics on, on, on these neurons and some mitochondrial genes pop up. And this combined with the fact that um, our lab previously showed already that mitochondria uh, and reactive oxygen species producing mitochondria of these sleep controlling neurons evolved in the control of sleep brought me to study this even more. I think one of the cool things about looking at mitochondria in our system is that we can isolate neurons that are responsible for um, uh, controlling a behavior, which is a homeostatic behavior and has something to do with bioenergy utilization. Consumption of energy and uptake of calories differs between when we are awake and when we are asleep. But I think just looking broadly at the whole brain isn't enough because there are many processes that are going on while we're sleeping. Probably one of the keys is to be able to isolate neurons that are responsible for a given homeostatic behavior that is depend that depends on the uh, bioenergetical state of the animal and looking all in those neurons at the mitochondria that are involved. I think this was uh, well at least for me I think it's one of the was one of the keys that brought me to finding something interesting into the mitochondria of these neurons. And of course this is combined with the fact that we have now uh, you know the ability to look have amazing imaging resources, uh, have um, technologies like um, uh, single cell sequencing that help us 
uh, finding interesting results in an unbiased ways, and also having working with the system of Drosophila helps because um, we can isolate neurons in a very specific way in a genetically um, targeted fashion. So I think the combination of these it's it's quite powerful. That's very interesting. Your model organism for this bioenergetics oriented neuronal exploration was the marvelous fruit fly. Now, in my limited reading of fly literature in the context of sleep, I've come across the recurring argument that using a reduction in locomotion as the sole readout of sleep may not be completely reliable. What are your thoughts on this and could you maybe tell us a bit about how sleep in flies is scientifically validated in recent research? And that's a question I get asked a lot about, first of all, whether Drosophila sleep at all. <laughs> Actually, if they have a brain, that's always uh, the first question. And they, have, they do have a brain, like uh, 10, 10 to the fifth neurons, more or less. And they have complex behaviors. So I think understanding any behavior in a behaving animal is already a big challenge. So I think starting with sleep, I think already we know a lot about sexual behavior, for example, and memory um, from studies that come from, from flies. And sleep is just another behavior. Uh, and as I said, I, th I think there is value in understanding any behavior, decomposing any behavior in its components you know, in, in any animal. And with Drosophila, we have the advantage of having a, you know, almost 100 years of uh, genetics uh, done on those and toolkits of any sort. Uh, so definitely there is value in, in studying flies and um, there is a famous quote from Seymour Benzer which is a, one of the father of neurogen behavioral neurogenetics uh, in, in flies to Francis Crick who said um, to not underestimate flies they can do more than you can do for example can you fly away and land upside down on the ceiling uh, <laughs> so they definitely do things that we can um, but, um, yeah, I think the, in general understanding, sleep is controlled by two uh, processes, the circadian clock and the sleep homeostat, and we know that well, the, the studies done in Drosophila on the circadian clock has been, have been incredibly valuable. The Nobel Prize in 2017 was awarded exactly on this, on works done in Drosophila. And so it's natural to study also the other component of the controllers of sleep in the same animal. It's true that the way we define sleep in flies is uh, maybe rudimental, um, is only by locomotion. Uh, but of course, I mean, it would be surprising if Drosophila wasn't sleeping. It would be the only animal <laughs> that won't sleep. So I think that there is clearly room for improvement in the, definition, in the operative definition of sleep in flies. But that's the, not the only thing that happens. There are electrical signatures of sleep uh, broadly in the whole brain and in specific neurons uh, in Drosophila. And I think the big, question, the big challenge is really to find good ways to increase the throughput of recording these in, in flies. Um, we now do head-fixed head-fixed flies and we can't do it in freely moving animals so uh, this really much limits, limits the throughput of using electrical signatures um, for defining sleep in this animal so I think this is something that can be improved and hopefully technology will bring us there but there is definitely a great advantage in using different models for, for studying sleep. So if we manage to understand what are the components, how sleep need is uh, accumulated, integrated, what are the threshold, how the threshold for going to sleep is set, 
in a given animal, I think that would be valuable, and there are chance, chances that this can apply to other animals. And even if was, this was not, I think it would be interesting uh, a set of discoveries, even just to understand how such an important behavior is implemented in the brain of any animal. So. That was fantastic. Um, Did I convince you? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Sure. It's really cool that now we can do so much with an organism that is so tiny. Could you maybe talk a bit about the amazing technology that makes all of this possible? Yeah, so I've been lucky enough because during my PhD I could use uh, very different techniques, which is something that um, you know is possible in our lab. And I'm very grateful for having done uh, very different experiments during my uh, PhD. Just to list some of the techniques I've used, definitely there is single-cell transcriptomics, transgenic animals, behavioral studies, molecular biology, imaging confocal imaging and to photon imaging. Definitely single cell transcriptomics is one is a relatively new technique. So transcriptomics is just a way to study the whole content, RNA content of a cell or a tissue or a given sample. Uh, and single cell is a new embodiment of this technology. You can look at the content of RNA per each cell of your sample, which is a powerful and has been generating a lot of data and hypotheses in, in, in any field in life science, really. Nowadays, there's also spatial transcriptomics available, which is even more powerful because it doesn't all, not only give you a readout per cell, but also keeps the, the anatomy of your sample. So you, you can also have some spatial information, which is powerful, I think, and is really the future. Transgenic animals, um, definitely we can manipulate animals by inserting uh, genes uh, and making them express in different tissues at different times, for example. And you can generate animals like that. And with Drosophila, this is something that is generally, generally routine. There are big depositories around the world of transgenic animals. Uh, we made some ourselves, for example. We use some that other people made. And that's a very useful way to manipulate uh, really the molecular machinery of, of a given tissue. And confocal microscopy is really now the gold standard for looking at uh, tissues, brain tissues, for example. And I think it's a very high, like it's a good compromise of high throughput of a high throughput technology, but also a decent um, uh, signal to noise ratio and uh, resolution and clarity of the image. And I've done some to photon imaging. Uh, it's basically a technology for having allowing a deeper penetration of photons into a tissue. So this way you can uh, image deeper down in a brain, uh, for example. And since you can image deeper down in, in the tissue, you can also keep the animal alive and look what, what's happening within the brain of the animal while the animal is, uh, is behaving, for example. And there's extremely uh, it's a very useful technique. Now it's it's almost standard in any big neuroscience lab. This really allows to perform experiments that have um, that can really correlate life within the same animal, with this, within the same individual a behavior and a, a manipulation of of a different sort in acute fashion. Uh, and I think it's it's one of the technologies that I mean people should really start uh, learning about when they are in high school. We can use light in neuroscience both for imaging, so for having a readout from our system, and for um, controlling our system. 
So that's something that, for example, my supervisor, uh, Geromisiam, worked a lot. So he was the first one to develop the technology of optogenetics, which is now, again, uh, standard almost in any behavior, in any neuroscience, uh, many big neuroscience project, in a way. What does optogenetic mean? Uh, in a simple way, it's a way to control a molecule with light. The most used kind of optogenetics are ion channels that are in the membrane of neurons that can be switched with light. Uh, we know ion channels allow changing the voltage of neurons in a way that drives their activity. And this way we can control the electrical activity of neurons using light. And when this was explained to me in, 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 in university, this was extremely fascinating. This was, so this was applied there in the paper of Tonegawa where they implant artificial memories using optogenetics. And at the same time, the concept of optogenetics was uh, introduced to me. And I found this extremely elegant because, so these are proteins that are they're coming from algae or bacteria. Uh, and you're implanting them into another animal and using them to control behavior. So it's really using uh, biology to understand the biology. So it's extremely elegant and opens so many ways in understanding how even a behavior, so a cognitive function, uh, is controlled. Um, so that lecture was one of the major drivers for me to switch from cell and molecular biology to neuroscience in a way. Um, so I found it very fascinating. And the, um, the way around is also very interesting because you can collect photons from a sample, for example, expressing uh, a fluorescent protein, either a normal green fluorescent protein or any modification of it, modifications that also change intensity depending on, for example, the activity of the neuron. And you can get a lot of information from that. And to photoimaging or focal imaging are just ways to collect photons. So we are really now uh, at a stage in neuroscience where it's possible to write and read from a, a neural sample using very little invasive techniques. Okay, great. Thank you so much. I, I never thought someone could explain these things so easily. <laughs> but that's fantastic. Technology allows us to look at a problem through so many different lenses. This makes me think, did you have any particularly special or eureka moments during this whole DFIL journey? Yeah, I mean, I'm still at the beginning of my academic career, hopefully. Uh, but there have been a couple of uh, eureka moments, if you want. Um, I mean, I, when, I, when we talk about these Eureka moments, I always remember a lecture from a professor in my university in, in Scuola Normale in Pisa. That, uh, what, so this was a lecture towards the end of his academic career, and he said that the, um, there are generally few Eureka moments that you can count on uh, the fingers of one hand, <laughs> maybe, uh, but they are totally worth the journey. Worth the journey. And um, I mean, it, you know, of course, no. <laughs> I've had some little ones. <laughs> uh, for example, the first time I observed neurons of mitochondria of neurons in sleep-deprived animals. Um, so my units of interest, I saw them; they were quite different from what I used to see. Or, for example, when we were predicting some neurons to have some strong connection of a different of a specific kind and then thanks to Drosophila uh, connectome uh, being available we looked into it and then in an hour we found that exactly the prediction that we had on the connectome which was really cool or uh, another another example is when so we had some behavioral experiments done with a certain animal in a specific set of neurons 
uh, and we try to use the same manipulations in another line that you know overlaps more or less with the neurons that we wanted and we saw exactly the same uh, pattern so that was done from by other people uh, so that was beautiful because we knew manipulations done in two different ways but still they brought exactly the same results I think uh, you know there are small Eureka moments but then when everything aligns so perfectly it's 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 easy to see the beauty I look forward to more Eureka moments <laughs> let's say your DFIL work is a really robust and impressive body of research and it uses so many different cool techniques. As a new and shiny DFIL student myself, I just have to ask, did you plan all this while you were writing your project proposal or is this something that you discover for yourself as you go along the journey? Yeah, I mean the experiences of PhDs are very in the you know, very variable and individual. Uh, I've been lucky because of, um, first of all, I work with Drosophila, which allows you to do a lot of different experiments with it, little planning compared to working with mammals, for example, that you can, you know, explore more. Uh, and at the same time, I, I've been working in a lab where different techniques are used at the same time, and you can learn them all, a well, lot of them. Um, and use them. So this, I was lucky at this point of view. But the other thing is that I started working with uh, hypothesis generating uh, techniques, which is single cell transcriptomics, and a lot of my follow-up work comes directly from from this. But in general, definitely, the, this is like what I did in the last years was completely unplanned. It's completely different from what I wrote in my PhD proposal. I mean, it's same topic in a way, but the findings are like was completely completely unexpected, and also the the directions are completely unexpected. And that's something that they found very cool. I liked it a lot. I like the fact that one can explore different ways and then just focus on those that look the most promising. Um, but that's not always the case. So, and I think each. PhD, even if it's more planned and works well, it's absolutely satisfying. So, um, as I said, this it's it's hard to generalize comments on how PhD project should be developed. I think there is a good component of, first of all, luck, <laughs> and uh, and being in the right environment. But also, one of the cool things of PhD is that one has the opportunity of exploring, and um, but also one should be able to put to completion a project uh, and I think this both these two components are present I think if they're both present in a in a PhD uh, that's good enough if we were just to put completion to a project we, this would be a very technical work um, and would you know uh, decrease the fun of doing science for sure and definitely will not uh, improve our independence as scientists so and the more we continue on, the more independent we need to be. So, um, so the more we continue in our career, the less the projects are going to be well defined from the beginning. So that's just completing a project isn't enough, I feel. Um, and I think exploring just for the sake of exploring or getting lost in exploration is also very dangerous because one has to be able to tell a story in the end. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think these are the two components that are important for a PhD. That makes sense. 
Can you tell me what would your primary advice to any prospective and incoming students be? I think we already know the research is frustrating most of the times. We are international people. We also move from other country with all the stresses that are related to that. Um, so we, I think the first thing is to find something that will really, so a question that will really keep your mood up for next two, three, four, five years of your time, which is not easy, I guess. Uh, and of course, another thing of it's to f uh, another important thing is to find an environment, both in the workplace and outside the workplace, that is that is nice and friendly. So I will definitely uh, advise to chat with the people in the lab that you're looking at, for example, uh, to see what's their impression, to see if they're happy with the environment, and of course, if you have the possibility also of being in a place that gives you. Uh, motivation uh, that's not boring uh, that's why I, I feel lucky to be in Oxford because it's a very vibrant city there's a lot of international people there's always something going on uh, and that really helps because it needs you know it helps to have something <laughs> outside of the lab that goes well anyway to end this podcast and in hindsight is there any advice you would give to your younger self in terms of science for sure I will be uh, Biggest advice is to label things perfectly, properly, and back up everything many times. <laughs> this is what I will tell to my first, to the first year PhD student, Rafaela. Um, and I also tell to you know my students sometimes when uh, that to always assume that one is uh, totally stupid <laughs> because we are always fighting with some with ourselves in the future that would have completely forgotten what we were talking about, what we were recording, which date we did the experiment, and so on and so forth. So always assume that the future self is totally stupid. That's the best approach I think to uh, to complete projects. Um, and then, uh, well, definitely in general, to how to approach academic um, life in is is um, so. An advice that I will give is definitely not to be shy, and to write to people, to contact people, to um, not be worried about professors' responses or or whatever any sort of application. I think that's something that at least I, I learned over time. Um, even just the opportunity of doing internships abroad, it's something that I did and I learned late. Um, and, you know, if I would go back, I would redo it. I was very focused on the courses, on the classes, on the on the grades. But uh, I think especially in, you know, in this environment, you really learn a lot by doing. Um, and so that definitely is something if I, could, if I had the opportunity, I would do more. Um, yeah. <laughs> and in the end, for international students, definitely I would advise to uh, find something that passionates you uh, and not be afraid because it's, it's worth uh, just for the experience itself of going abroad. And I think one of the good, cool advantages that we have as scientists is that science is international uh, and we have the opportunity of talking to people that come from all over the world on topics that are interesting to us, moving all over the world for conferences or for working somewhere else, and as, as we are very young. Um, so, I, yeah, there are many drawbacks <laughs> in science, but I think this is really a privilege that we have uh, in our job. So, yeah, so take advantage of it, I would say. <laughs> That's brilliant. We've now come to the end of this episode. In summary of Rafael's interview, 
we've covered the importance of sleep and how studies using Drosophila have aided in contributing to the understanding of sleep, which was highlighted in Raphael's doctoral research. Furthermore, it was truly inspiring to see how Raphael's journey developed from a young master's and DPhil student to now being a postdoctoral research scientist here at Oxford. I have no doubt that there'll be more to hear in the near future from Raphael's research on the molecular nature and cellular biology of sleep control. Thanks for listening in on our conversation today. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Please keep an eye on our social media to find our next one.